are you doing today? I'm not convinced. Better. We're so glad you're here. Just a couple of other things to bring to your attention very quickly. If you're new to our area, a, a mom with small children in particular, we are doing a new thing called Park Play Date. If you're looking to make some friends, get to know some other uh, moms and your children interact with some other children, this is going to be beginning in March. It'll be the first Monday, the third Thursday of every month. There's purple flyers. You can't miss them out in the, the lobby there. Grab one if that's of interest to you. Invite some friends to come with you. Also, many of you are aware that we have been struggling trying to find a way to deal with a hillside. Uh, there's three acres going up to the Olympic Training Center, and what can we plant there to stabilize it and so forth. And so we finally found the right plant. It's an acacia plant, which I had no idea what that was until somebody showed me one. They actually grow all around here, uh, kind of not native to our area. They're Mediterranean plants, but they grow really well here, very low maintenance. They're about three or four foot high. They grow about 15 feet wide. So we're going to plant acacia plants there, 400 of them. Bushes, 400 of them. So here's what we need you to do, two things. We need you to buy a bush. <laughs> They're $3.15 for a, a bush type of thing. And when you go out today, you'll see a couple of baskets there right as the doors on the inside of the gym before you walk out. And it just says for acacia plants, if you want to buy some bushes, do that. And then we need you to come on Saturday, March 11th, because we're going to plant them. <laughs> so I want you to come back. We'll get you more information about that. But we got to put those things in the ground while the ground's still soft. And we really think that will help our hillside on that. My guess is most of you, just like me, have no idea who this gentleman is. He looks like something from a 1960s, you know, man from Mars or something type of thing. But the plane is kind of distinct. In fact, here's another view of the plane. And you might recognize those planes. That's a U-2 spy plane. The gentleman that you saw is Francis Gary Powers, probably the most famous spy plane pilot in American aviation history. Uh, back on May, or rather, yeah, May 1st, 1960, 1960, he was flying over Russia. Russia developed some uh, technology where they could shoot a surface-to-air uh, uh, missile, and they hit his plane, even though it was flying about 70,000 square uh, feet up in the air. Hit his plane. He had to parachute out, plane crash. He was safely landed, so to speak, in his parachute, but he was captured by the Russians. He was put on trial. He was sentenced to three years in prison and seven years of hard labor in Russia. Fortunately, he only stayed, only had to be there for two years, and we worked out a prisoner swap with the Russians and freed him. Once he finished his military career, he began working with Lockheed, and he flew some of the most dangerous experimental planes that had ever been created at the time. Once he finished that career, his final career, he was a, flew a helicopter for a Los Angeles TV station and was a traffic reporter. You know, the little helicopters you fl see flying around. And he actually died one day when he was in his, his traffic helicopter reporting the traffic in L.A. He, di he died, the helicopter crashed. Do you know why the helicopter crashed? It ran out of gas. So here's this man, this world-renowned pilot, who, you know, spent all this time, you know, flying these spy planes in a Russian prison, all like that, and then find these crazy experimental planes and all like that, and he dies because he simply ran out of gas? Wow. Well, as Drew mentioned, we're on a brand new message series called The Hope Quotient. If you haven't already done so, look inside your program, take out your message outline this morning, and here is the first fill-in-the-blank on your message outline this morning. Here it is. Running on empty is a really bad life strategy, okay? Running on empty is a really bad life strategy. Everything that goes forward, everything that stays up, is because it is fueled and the engine is on. So the question we're going to be looking at this morning is this, what 
fuels you? What fuels you? You can be the most gifted, the most experienced person in the world, but if you run out of fuel, you're going to crash and you're going to burn, so to speak. Your skill level, your talents, your education, everything you've got going for you is not any good to you if you run on empty. You will fail. So on this new series that we started last week on hope, a couple of things that we learned is that hope is something that is absolutely vital to every single person living to make it through life. We have to have hope. But an interesting thing we looked at was that hope is something that can be learned. It is a byproduct of seven what we're calling hope-building factors that we have to build into our lives. And that's what this series is all about. So we're going to start today looking at the first of those seven factors. This series is going to carry us all the way to Easter, and I hope you'll be with us each and every week. So here's the next fill in the blank. This is the first of the seven hope-building factors we must incorporate into our lives. You must make sure your batteries are recharged. You must make sure your life batteries are recharged. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Look at the next fill in the blank. The road to a better future is never traveled on an empty tank. The road to a better future is never traveled on an empty tank. Now, why? Why is this such a big deal? Look at the next fill-in. Drained people, people who run out of gas, so to speak, are more susceptible to the toxic emotions of things like fear, anxiety, discouragement. They tend to make bad decisions. They tend not to respond well, don't feel well. They do not live well. So this morning, we're going to ask two primary questions. What drains you of your energy? And what fuels you? What drains you and what fuels you? First, let's, let's pay attention to what's draining you. And from the very beginning, let me just say this. What drains you will be different for each person. So this is not some cookie-cutter formula or whatever. You've got to determine what drains you. Because what may drain you may not drain me or somebody else as well on that. For instance, let me just ask you this. How many of you just absolutely hate yard work? You just hate yard work. Anybody? Some of you hate yard work. Okay. I love yard work. It is therapeutic for me. Some of my best thinking comes when I am mowing grass. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I got some grass you can mow. I don't need your grass. I got plenty of grass to mow. But it is therapeutic for me when I do yard work. I love it when you've got a, you know, you've cleaned out your flower beds, your grass is cut, you stand back and you see a beautiful green lawn, you got flowers. Man, that is a cool, that jazzes me. On the other hand, how many of you love administrative details? You are just all into the details and all like that. God bless you, because I'm not. I just, I, there's certain things that I on my plate, and I just look at it, and they just sit there, and I just hate the, even the thought of them. And I just, I don't want to do that. And you know, when you get around to doing it, it's not that bad, but it's just the thought. I just, oh, I just hate that stuff. Some of you love it. So what fuels you, what drains you, they're going to be different. They're going to be different. Here's the next fill in the blank on your message outline, and here's kind of what we got to do. We've got to get rid of the non-essential things that are draining you. The non-essential things that are draining you, that non-essential will come back into play in just a moment. So let's look very quickly at five passion killers. These are things that exhaust your fuel supply. They cause you to crash and burn. Passion killer number one, unhealthy people. Unhealthy people. We all have unhealthy people in our lives. How can you tell who they are? These are the people you have to recover from once you've been around them. That's how you know. All right. Some of you are going like, I know who you're talking about now. All right. Yeah. Now, hopefully, this is not your spouse. And if it is, please don't look at them right now. Okay. They fall under the essential category. You, you got to keep them. All right. Type of thing. So 
That's why we say get rid of the non-essential things. Spouse doesn't fall into that category on that. There's some people that you see and you're excited to see. You kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't wait. And there's some people you see and you go, oh, no, oh, no. You just don't want to be around them. Some people are so negative. You may have to love them. Maybe you're related to them. You have no choice. You know, that type of thing. But you can't spend too much time around them, and here's why. You may become like them. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on. So some of you may be thinking, hey, do do you tell me I have to hang out with perfect people? Well, no. Because if you could only hang out with perfect people... You would even be, you could even hang out with yourself. I mean, you know, no, we're not saying that, but the, the primary relationships you have need to be those that build you up and not tear you down. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, the great missionary Paul, writing back to some Christians at a church he had, he had started in the ancient Mediterranean city of Thessalonica, writes these words, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. I want you to underline the phrase encourage and underline the phrase build each other up because those are the kinds of people we need into our lives, not unhealthy people. Here's passion killer number two, unkind critics. Unkind critics. I think every one of us would agree we are foolish if we do not listen to advice and listen to feedback that other people give us. However, would you agree with this, that there are some people that want to give you feedback that necessarily don't have your best interest at heart? Could that possibly be true? In Ephesians 4.15, again, Paul writing to a church, group of Christians that he had started a church in Ephesus, the ancient Greek Mediterranean city, and he says this, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Have you ever met somebody who spoke the truth but didn't speak in love? You see, you can use truth like a club and you can beat people down with it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you speak the truth, but you have to speak it in love. Do you have any friends that their spiritual gift is the gift of criticism, and they love to be criticize you type of a thing? This is kind of the person we're talking about, avoid unkind critics. Passion killer number three is an unbalanced schedule, an unbalanced schedule. For some of you, the greatest takeaway you're going to get this morning is this next Bible verse. You want to memorize this verse, Psalm 127, verse 2. In fact, it's on the screen for you. Let's read this verse out loud together, please. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Some of you are going like, hey, that." Thank you, Pastor Russ. I'm taking a little vacation. I'm taking a break right now. I I agree with you on that. There's an old proverb that goes like this. He who burns the candles at both ends is not as bright as he thinks. So just kind of remember that one. Passion, uh, Passion killer number four is unnecessary guilt. Unnecessary guilt. You cannot feel enthusiasm and guilt at the same time. Now, here's one thing that you often hear people talk about. There is good guilt and there is bad guilt. There is good guilt and there is bad guilt. And you're saying, well, Pastor Russ, what, 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 is, what are you talking about? Look at this next fill in the blank. Good guilt comes from God. Good guilt comes from God. And it is designed to help us see our wrong and to respond appropriately. When I lie, when I act or treat somebody in a, in a wrong way, if I steal from somebody, God brings guilt into my life. That is good guilt. What is it for? It is to make me realize the error of my way and to correct myself. Maybe I need to go apologize. Maybe I need to make restitution, whatever it may be. That is good guilt. It is from God, and it is to draw us back into our right relationship with Him to see our wrong, respond appropriately. On the other hand, there is bad guilt. 
Bad guilt does not come from God. Look at this, fill in the blank. Bad guilt comes from Satan. It comes from our spiritual enemy. And it is designed to shame you and me. It is designed to make you feel unworthy. It is designed to make you feel like you are no good whatsoever. It's that little voice that sometimes you may hear in your head. It goes something like this. After you blew it, you sinned, you did something wrong. How could you do that? How could you do that? You call yourself a Christian and you just did that? You're worthless. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. You are no good. I'm going to tell you something. When you hear those voices, that is not coming from God. That is coming from our enemy who wants to beat you down, beat me down, so that we honestly buy into the shame game and we think that we are worthless people. Let me tell you something. God makes no junk. You're not worthless. You're an invaluable creation of God who loved you so much he died for you. Look at this verse, Romans 8.1. If you suffer from guilt, bad guilt, you need to memorize Romans 8.1. Let's read this verse out loud together. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are here this morning and you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a Christ follower, he says there is no condemnation. That's why Jesus died was to take the condemnation away from you. So stop condemning yourself. Jesus took that away from you by his sacrificial death. In fact, on this verse, I want you to underline the phrase, no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at this fill in the blank. God wants to forgive you for your past, and he wants to also free you from your past. He wants to forgive you for your past, whatever it may be, but he wants to free you from your past. The la- the, probably the least unhealthy thing that you and I can do is get stuck in the past and constantly start looking backwards with regrets in our life. That is incredibly unhealthy. Maybe that's why Paul, when he wrote another letter to the Christians in the ancient city of Philippi, wrote these words, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Few things will steal your joy more quickly and rob your passion by having your life saturated with bad guilt. Passion killer number five, underestimating the impact of exposure. Underestimating the impact of exposure. This is absolutely critical. Look at this next fill in the blank. What we think about determines who we will become. What we think about will determine who we become. The wisdom writer in Psalm, rather Proverbs 23, 7 wrote it this way. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. If you read this from the King James Version, it would say, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. What you and I think about will determine who we become. Look at the next fill in. Your mind will think most about whatever you most expose it to. Your mind will most think about whatever you most expose it to. This is the impact of, of, of exposure. Your mind will repeatedly, whatever enters your mind repeatedly, will be revealed in your character and in your life. Now, we understand this from a health-wise perspective. We get this. What I put in my body matters. We're very fortunate to have a lot of Olympic athletes who are in our services and they're here. You, most of time you never know. They're just wonderful people. But they would never, ever, if they're on preparation for a major event, they would never go on a chocolate and caffeine diet. They wouldn't do it. 
because they know what fuels their body, what they put into their body, what, what they need. So they would not do that. We know the same thing. We know it matters what we put into our bodies, especially if you're a parent. You are very guarded about what you give your children, right? At least the first child. Yeah, yeah. Remember when the binky falls out of their mouth, the first child, what do you do? You pick it up, you go boil it. Second child, the binky falls off, you dust it off, stick it back in. Okay, that's just kind of how it goes. But we're conscious about what we put into our children's bodies, so to speak. And hopefully we're conscious about what we would put in. But we totally disregard this principle, the impact of, of exposure in the most important area of our lives. And that is our minds. Our minds. Look at this next fill in the blank. The events you and I attend. The materials that you read, the music that you hear, the images that you watch, the daydreams you engage in are shaping your mind and ultimately shaping your actions, your character, and your destiny. It is so important what we expose our minds to. It is so important. The law of exposure is as predictable as the law of gravity. If I take a step off of the stage, what's going to happen to me? Boom, the law of gravity kicks in, and I'm going to bust it on the floor. That will happen 100 times out of 100 times, will it not? Because the law of gravity is, is absolutely true on that. I would never step off the stage and then get up and go, how did that happen? I, I don't know how that, how could that be? Well, what do you expect to happen? You take a step off the stage, you go, we understand that. But when it comes to this, we see people all the time who don't understand this law of exposure. They expose themselves to all these unhealthy things into their lives, through their mind, especially on that. They get bad results and they go, how did that happen? And you want to go, what do you think was going to happen? It's just like walking off the stage. The law of exposure happens 100% of the time. What you expose yourself to is going to impact your life. It's what you're going to think about. So why are you surprised when you did all of that and now you reap the results? It's, it's just going to happen. These five passion killers will drain you and they will suck the energy right out of you and they will leave you empty. Avoiding them is the first part of, fuel, of rather keeping yourself fully energized, but it's not the only part. We have also in our church family a lot of military personnel, a lot of veterans, so, so appreciative of what you do and what you have done for our country. Any military person will know this, that if you are engaged in battle, in combat, one of the mo in a war, one of the most important things is to keep your supply lines open. Keep your supply lines open. Very crucial for winning any conflict. Now, some of you may actually be a World War II buff, and you may know who this is. I've had people identify this person in both services. Who is it? It is exactly right. This is German Field Marshal Irvin Rommel, also known as the Desert Fox. This man was in charge of the German forces at the beginning of World War II in North Africa. And he almost made a decisive blow early on in World War II by pushing the British forces almost out of North Africa. However, by 1941, he had been forced back to almost his original positions. Why? Because he ran ahead of his supply lines and basically ran out of gas. And the Allied troops, with the Americans joined in, were able to push him back and secure the victory for the Allies. Recharging your batteries requires that there are five supply lines we're very quickly going to look at that you need to keep open that can keep you spiritually and emotionally fueled. So how do we develop these supply lines? Supply line number one, invest in your own growth. Invest in your own growth. 
So the key question here is this. What are you doing year by year to invest in your own growth and your development? What are you doing investing in yourself? If you're a parent, you're constantly thinking about your children's growth. If you're an executive, you're constantly thinking about your company's growth. If you're a teacher, you're constantly thinking about your students' growth. But what are you thinking about growth for you? Your growth, not somebody else's growth. What about your growth? Jesus took time to recharge his spiritual batteries, if you would, his emotional batteries as well. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, the scripture tells us this, but Jesus often, I want you to circle that word, he often, not sporadically, not periodically, he often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. This is an incredibly important principle. Our staff takes this principle very, very seriously. A couple of times a year, our staff will go to conferences to learn new things, to be exposed to new things. In several of our group meetings and stuff, we're reading various different books uh, and, and to get more input into our lives. At our monthly all-staff meeting, we always will have two or three articles that we read and discuss together. I am personally involved in a mentoring group that has been instrumental in my own life. We need this investment in our lives. You could just fill in the blank on this. Growing blank have growing leaders. Growing churches have growing leaders. Growing companies have growing leaders. Growing schools have growing teachers. We have to invest in our own growth. Supply line number two, we under, you need to understand the power of worship. Understand the power of worship. Some people, when they think of worship, it's kind of like a child in Sunday school. They were going through their lesson. It wasn't very exciting for the child. So the child blurts out and says this, can't we hurry? This is boring. And the little girl sitting beside him, she shushed him. She says, this is supposed to be boring. It's church. That's not what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Isaiah writes these words, but those who hope, there's that word, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not be faint. Authentic worship. Authentic worship renews your strength. It reconnects you with God. It restores your perspective. It rekindles hope. It rebuilds your confidence. It restores your joy. It releases your anxieties. Worship, authentic worship is so powerful that God said, I want you to take a day off and I want you to do it. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 8 through 10, one of the Ten Commandments, here it is. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. Now, we like the day off, don't we? I'm all in for day off. Yeah, I like the day off type of thing. But notice what he says. This is not just an off day. When you take your Sabbath rest, your rest, you're also it says it's dedicated to me. There's a portion that you want to spend getting rejuvenated spiritually by focusing in on your relationship with God on that. So look at this next fill-in. This is why worship is so important. It refocuses me on God. I get my attention off of me and I begin to focus on God who can actually help me. That's why church is so important. But by the way, when we think of worship, we normally think of just the musical portion of a, of, a, of a worship service. That's a part of it. It's a very important part. And by the way, I just kudos to our, our, our worship team and Pastor Jason leading them. I mean, the, what they've been doing these last few months and so forth, building a great team and what we see and what we're experiencing here, absolutely incredible. I hope when you leave, some of these tunes stay in your head and throughout the week, they just like a record player playing inside. You just keep going back over those, those songs. It helps brings us into the presence of God. But that's not the only way. 
It's not the only way by any means. We need to learn to worship outside of church. And you can worship by putting in a CD in your car. You can have it on your iPhone or your iPad or your iPod, whatever you might have. But also, too, it's not just related to music. When you do your quiet time, it's a form of worship. When you just sit in silence before God to listen to God, that is also a form of worship. Early on in American aviation history, everything that was done was a first. If you go to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., which is absolutely mind-boggling to do that, but to do that, you see all these firsts in American flight history. Before World War I, there was a man who attempted to fly around the globe. He started on the west coast of the United States. He made his way after a couple of stops because he couldn't fly all the way even across America and refueled and, and so forth. He got to the east coast where he stopped, and his next Next stop would be about four hours away, but he would be flying pretty much over the, the Atlantic Ocean to get there. He got about halfway into his flight, about two hours in, and he started hearing this strange noise on his plane. At first, he couldn't figure out, what's going on? What is that noise? What's that noise? And all of a sudden, it dawned on him. It was the gnawing sound of a rat in his plane that was chewing on his steering cable. And he knew that if that rat managed to go th gnaw through that cable, then it would send his plane straight down and he would die. So he's sitting there, what do I do? I can't fly back. I can't fly any faster forward. I I'm, you know, I'm halfway through this thing. I'm over the ocean. What do I do? And he had a life-saving thought. Rats are not meant to live in the air. They're meant to live on ground. So he took his plane and he increased his elevation. He went up about as high as he could and leveled his plane off and kept flying at that higher elevation. Because of the altitude change, Maybe because of the temperature as well. After a while, he slowly didn't hear the gnawing sound anymore. The rat had died. Made it to his destination, landed, refueled, found the dead rat, threw him out the window type of thing. Worship. Worship is a lot like that. The rodents of your life, the rodents in my life aren't meant to live in the presence of God. And if you and I can somehow elevate ourselves to get a little closer to God, a little nearer to Him, notice this, last, this next fill in the blank, worship takes you to places where worry and anxiety and stress and fear wither away and they cease to gnaw at your life. Supply line number three, unleash the Bible into your life. Unleash the Bible into your life. A four-year study was, was done to determine in America and extensive study, four years, what factors most effectively cause spiritual growth and life transformation. So they interviewed hundreds of people all across America and after four years published their results. Here's a three-sentence quote from their report. The Bible is the most powerful catalyst for spiritual growth. The Bible's power to advance spiritual growth is unrivaled by anything else. Reflection on Scripture is by far the most influential spiritual practice. Romans 12, 2 is a verse that many of us have read many times, but we miss a key, key part of how we have life transformation. It's on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, here's what we skip over. How does God say he changes you, transforms you from the inside out? He begins by changing the way you what? The way you think. See, we start with the actions. We immediately jump into doing things and we think that's how we're going to change. 
you'll do the action for a little while, and then, you, then it goes away. You have to change internally. God says, I'm going to change you from the inside out by changing the way you think first. Look at this little uh, five little pair, five little bullets here. It's kind of a progression. This is from John Maxwell. Many of you know the name John Maxwell. He was a well-known pastor at Skyline Church for years and years out in the Lemon Grove area. But he's the one who originated this. Number one, he says, when you change your thinking, you change your beliefs. When you change your thinking, you change your beliefs. Second stage, when you change your beliefs, you change your expectations. When you change your beliefs, you change your expectations. Third, when you change your expectations, you change your attitude. You change your attitude. Number four, when you change your attitude, you change your behavior. And then number five, when you change your behavior, you change your life. Where does it all begin? By changing the way you think. That's where it starts. Look at this fill in the blank. All great life change starts when I change the way that I think. If you and I lack inner strength, you will lack hope. Hope never pours itself out on empty, depleted people. And we get more inner strength by getting God's Word, unleashing the Bible in our lives. Two Coke cans. Pretty much the same. With this one, I can try to grip that and squeeze that as hard as I can. I cannot dent that thing. With this one, Why can I crush this one and I can't do anything with this one? Why? This one's empty, not my right arm stronger. This one's empty, this one's full. When you are filled up on the inside, you can withstand the external pressures on the outside. You're empty on the inside, you're going to get crushed in life. Feeling goes like this. Inner strength is essential when you're under pressure. And I want to help you do a practical, practical way to apply this to your life. Some of you have never done this before. Look inside your program. Take out this little half-page white insert. It's called 35-Day Bible Reading Challenge. I'm going to ask you from now until the Friday before Easter, six more weeks, seven weeks actually, I'm going to ask you to read one chapter of the Bible a day. For Monday through Friday. Saturday is an off day. Sunday, you're in church. Right? I didn't hear that. Sunday, you're in church. Right? Okay, I just, just checking. I just want to make sure you knew where you're supposed to be. Okay, all right. Now, I've intentionally chose these verses leading us all the way from where we are right now to lead us right up to the Friday before Easter. I'm going to ask you, beginning tomorrow, if you take this challenge, and this is one of the next steps I'm asking you to say, would you do this on your next steps today? Would you say, I'll take the challenge. I'm going to ask you, first of all, to read the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. This is the, a, the, one of the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. I want you to just read about Jesus. It's going to take you 16 reading sessions to do that. Once you finish that, I'm going to have you read the book of James. It's a small letter in the back of the New Testament portion of the Bible. It was written by the half-brother of Jesus. You say, why that book? Because it's one of my favorites. That's why I'm going to have you read that. It's one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. It's incredibly practical. You read it and go, man, that's great stuff. 
Then I'm going to have you read three days in the book of Proverbs, different Proverbs. Proverbs are wisdom sayings. And if you can understand, you want to be wise and make wise, smart decisions, you start incorporating some of the Proverbs into your life, and you go like, you're going, your decision-making goes off, off the charts, okay? Then we'll have you read three of the most famous Psalms there is. These are another different kind of literature just on that. And then notice the last eight days or seven days. Let me see that. That is eight days. The last eight days, I'm going to have you read John 14 through the end of John 21. Why? Because this is going to get you ready for Easter. This is, these, these chapters tell the last few days and hours of Jesus' life and his resurrection. So I want you to read that. So I'm going to challenge you. Would you take five minutes a day? Because that's like, it's just a chapter. It's one chapter. Take the challenge. Some of you have never done this. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll give you a Bible. We'll give you a Bible. Love for you to do this. So take the challenge. Encourage you to do that. Get God's word into your life. Then find, uh, no, supply line number four. Supply line number four. Build great relationships. Build great relationships. Would you agree that all of us have people on our backs what we need is people on our side, not just on our backs. We need people on our side. Listen to some of this research. In his book, A Cry Unheard, New Insights into Medical Consequences of Loneliness, Dr. James Lynch cites a wealth of studies proving lonely people live significantly shorter lives. The University of Michigan researchers discovered the lack of friendship is a health risk as high as obesity, smoking, and high blood pressure. No friends. Dr. John Gottman from the University of Washington studied 600 couples and concluded that friendship is the key to marital happiness. And then the Carnegie Institute studies revealed that 85% of financial success is due to skill with people. Feeling goes like this. Loneliness is rampant in our culture. We need good friends, especially when we feel depleted. We need good friends, especially when we feel depleted. Friends can give us hope. <clears throat> they can keep us going when everything else inside of us says this, I can't take this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Good friends help us get through this. I'm going to show you a clip. This is from the 2000 Sydney Olympics. This is a clip about a young man named Eric Musambini. He's from Equatorial Guinea. Who even knows where Equatorial Guinea is? Where is it? Near the equator. What continent? Africa. It's from Africa. I didn't, you know, I have to look these things up. Back in this, this period, the Olympics were allowing countries to get them more participation. They would allow countries, athletes to participate in various events who did not qualify by Olympic standards they didn't hear it certain times or certain whatever. They didn't do it, but they let them get in just to get exposure type of thing. Equatorial Guinea in the 2004 Olympics sent four athletes. One of them was a swimmer by the name of Eric Musambani. When he got ready for his heat, and he was swimming the 100-meter freestyle, he got ready for his heat. Two other guys were there. The winner of the heat is automatically advances to the next round. The other two guys jumped the starting gun and went into the water. They got disqualified. He was the only one swimming in his heat. He automatically won his heat. <laughs> automatically won his heat. <clears throat> the interesting thing is this. He had to swim, just had to swim the 100 meters. He had never swam 100 meters in his life. He didn't even start swimming until about three months before. He had never swam in any pool longer than 20 meters because in his country, that's, they found some hotel that had this old ratty pool that he could swim in a few laps. Look at his story. Thank you, Mark. 
As soon as he broke the water, it became clear this would be no ordinary swim. Eric Musambani only found out Sunday he'd even be in the hundred. No big deal, except he'd never swum that far before. Ever. In fact, before this week, he'd never been in a 50-meter pool. His country had only organized a federation in March. The national trials were more like a life-saving test. No timing, just a few laps in a 20-meter hotel pool. You could certainly understand if Musambani was just a little overwhelmed by all of what he had seen in these last five days. Just Friday, he led his country's delegation of four athletes into Stadium Australia. But now, that was all fading. He was halfway home now and would later say he desperately wanted to stop. But all alone and clearly struggling, the crowd adopted him. He heard the cheering. It made him want to continue. For one length of the pool, Alexander Popov needs 17 full strokes. Musambani had taken 38. He's been training for three months. His goal is to swim 130. But then again, he'd also like to have a coach. Neither is going to happen. The last few meters are painful, but more so for whom? Musambani or those cheering him on? When it's all over, he is spent. The crowd so excited, he would later say, he thought he had actually won a medal. How wonderful and sincere is his innocence. And maybe that's why so many who might have started off laughing ended up cheering. Talk about a moment. There he was, alone, with not much more than his pride. Could you do it? Allow yourself to compete on the world's most elite and scrutinized sporting stage, knowing the best you could do might simply make people laugh. There is no bigger game at these games than what happens in this pool. No one swam more slowly than did Eric Musambani. No one finished further off the pace. But in spite of it, maybe because of it, no one may be remembered as fondly. It's one thing to talk about competition as the true meaning of this fortnight. It is another thing entirely to live it. It was obviously from the video that he was struggling just to try to even finish. After it was over, he was asked what made him continue. He said it was the cheering from the crowd. We need people in our lives to cheer us on, especially during difficult, difficult times. In Ecclesiastes 4.10, we are told that if a, one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone falls alone, he or she is in real trouble. We need to strengthen the relationships that we have and focus on the ones that we need in order to recharge us. And then finally, number supply line number five, pay attention to whose voice you are listening to. Pay attention to whose voice you are listening to. Jesus put it this way. He said, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Follow the voice of Jesus. And then in Hebrews 13, 5, God tells us this. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. God is telling us that we can trust him. Pay attention to whose voice you are listening to. Let me close with this story. 
There's a family that went into a restaurant to have a, a, a meal together. They had several small children, and when the food came, one little boy about five years old asked his mother, could he say the blessing for their meal? And you know how little children sometimes will talk in a little bit of a louder voice. So he broke out in his prayer, and here's what he said. God is good. God is great. Lord, I thank you for the food, and I will thank you even more when mom gets me ice cream for dessert and liberty and justice for all. Amen. Dead on, dead on on that. Some of the customers overheard the prayer and they laughed, but a cranky woman nearby said loud enough for everyone to hear, kids these days asking God for ice cream. He should be ashamed. Hearing this, a little boy burst into tears. Mommy, did I do something wrong? Is God mad at me? She reassured him that God was not mad at him, but an older gentleman walked over to their table, leaned close to the boy, winked, and he said, young man, I happen to know God, and I happen to know, that, what, that to know that God thought that was a terrific prayer. Really? Absolutely, he said. And then he nodded over towards the cranky older woman and said this, Too bad she doesn't ask God for some ice cream. A little ice cream is good for your soul sometimes. At the end of the meal, the mom ordered the young boy big dish of ice cream. When he got the ice cream, his eyes lit up, but he put his spoon down picked up his ice cream, walked over to where the cranky old lady was sitting, placed it in front of her and said, here, ma'am, this is for you. A little ice cream is good for the soul sometimes. My soul's good already. We need inner strength. It's different for all of us. It's like flavors of ice cream. What energizes you? What drains you? Here's the deal. Take your pick of what it is, whatever flavor it may be for you, but begin to incorporate those things into your life. It's the first building block in how to increase your hope quotient. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father God, thank you so much for the hope that you and you alone can give us in this world. And Father, I would lift up anyone here this morning, especially who's going through a dark time in their lives, maybe life seemingly is hopeless, that God, they would begin to, to take these building blocks that we've talked about to avoid the negative ones in their lives, but to build on these positive ones. And each one of us would begin to build these in our lives and you would begin to bring hope into our hearts and our lives, Father. We thank you for what you can do in our lives, that you can literally change us from the insides out. It begins by how we think. It begins by in taking your word to get a different perspective on life and the world. Help us to begin to take these baby steps. And Father, would you meet us as we take these steps and would you begin to restore, renew, and build into each of our lives hope, hope that you can give us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Russ. It's a great message series we're in. We hope you guys continue to come back. Thank you for coming today. I have one very quick announcement. If you're here today and you've got a few extra minutes at the end of the service, I want to encourage you to stick around. We have a trip that's coming up this June uh, to La Esperanza in San Quentin down in Mexico. It's a week-long trip for about five or six days. It's a week that'll change your life. So we're going to have an info session as soon as we're done with this service right here. So if you get a chance, stick around for a half hour. We're going to talk about that, and hopefully we'll get some of you guys signed up to do that. And now we come to that time in our service where we take our tithes and our offerings, which means we just give back a portion of what God has given to us. So if we could just take these baskets right here. We've got some baskets down front. So if we could just have some people grab those right there. 
That one right there. You guys get an A-plus right here, okay? All right, we got one right there. Snake those things on back. Once they get back to the last tables, go ahead and get them on to Rick. Once you've given, feel free to stand up, and we're going to sing about the hope that we have in Christ today. Lead us on this, Stevie. Speak, I need you, Lord, come find me, Holy Spirit.